Hey there, fellow Year of Polygamy listeners. This is Glenn Ostlin from the Infants on Thrones podcast. And Lindsay has asked me to put together this little promo to share with you some very exciting news. First of all, it goes without saying that Lindsay has done an amazing job with this podcast over the past three and a half years. But I'm going to say it anyway. Lindsay has done an amazing job with this podcast over the past three and a half years. And now she's ready to take it to the next level. Now, what exactly is that next level? Have any of you listened to the Serial podcast? From This American Life and WBEZ Chicago, it's Serial, one story told week by week. I'm Sarah Koenig. How about S-Town? Something's happened. Something has absolutely happened in this town. There's just too much little crap for something not to have happened. Finding Richard Simmons? Yeah, that Richard Simmons. You know the guy. Short shorts, bedazzled tank tops, a big curly head of hair, halfway between Jimi Hendrix and Little Orphan Annie. Now, there are some really amazing podcasts out there right now that tell stories in a carefully crafted, highly produced, very engaging way. Now, wouldn't it be awesome if the stories that Lindsay has uncovered here on the Europe Polygamy podcast could be told in that same serial kind of style? Well, that's exactly what Lindsay wants to do. And I'm going to help her do it. And all of you can too. Because now I've been telling Lindsay all about how great it has been since Infants on Throne started our Patreon page this past June. So guess what? Lindsay is starting a Patreon page for Year of Polygamy too. I know, right? And you can all support her as her patrons. For as little as $1 an episode, you can help support Lindsay's efforts not only to keep Year of Polygamy podcast continuing, but to also start crafting a new sister podcast, a, I don't know, Year of Polygamy storytellers kind of thing. So that something like this... There was supposedly a riot that occurs. As these men are seen with the women, the men, the Mormon men are getting more and more upset. There was a street riot where there's a big, huge brawl. Nobody was killed, but there was a lot of men fighting on both sides. Could sound a little more like something like this. There was supposedly a riot that occurs. As these men are seen with the women, there was a street riot where there's a big, huge brawl. Nobody was killed, but there was a lot of men fighting on both sides. Now, I know that's kind of cheesy sounding. You know, it just added some music, some sound effects. But what we would do is actually script out some stories, would create seasons and would have episodes and would craft it to tell the many compelling stories that there are to tell from the Year of Polygamy podcast. Now, like I said, Lindsay will continue to bring you the Year of Polygamy podcast as she has in the past. That's not going to change. But your support on Patreon will free up some time and resources so that Lindsay can focus on a new direction for a sister podcast. Plus, you really just want to see this woman succeed, don't you? I do. So head over to Patreon forward slash Year of Polygamy and show your support for Lindsay today. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer?
Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm bringing back one of my favorite people, an old friend and a repeat guest on the podcast, Ben Park. Can you say hello? Glad to be here. Ben, you were just in Salt Lake City where I got to see you give a lecture um, on transcendentalism in America. It was- I, I think the better uh, description is you endured a lecture on <laughs> transcendentalism. I did not. It was amazing. Anytime that Ben talks about anything, it's really fascinating and gave me some new insight. But Ben, for those who don't know, tell us who you are, tell us what you do, and why you're on the podcast tonight. Sure. Well, I am an assistant professor of history at Sam Houston State University. Um, I focus on his uh, American religious, political, and cultural history, mostly between the American Revolution and the Civil War. I've written a number of articles uh, related to Mormon history, and I've uh, recently uh started, well, not recently, but I've been working on a book on Mormon Nauvoo, which involves polygamy a little bit that I'm uh, having a lot of fun writing and about halfway done and hope to finish it next fall or so. And you've been on the podcast to talk about the succession crisis. And I swear there was one other one. Am I? Yeah, I think we talked about the succession crisis twice. Oh, okay. Well, that's why. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so today we're not talking about that. We're going to talk about, um, we're going to go back into early church history again. I love it when we do this. And we're going to talk about the life of Sarah Ann Whitney. Now, we have talked about Sarah Ann Whitney. We have um, an entire podcast episode in the early 30s about her. I'll look up the exact episode. I should know off the top of my head, but turns out there are a lot of women and a lot of stories to tell. Um, <laughs> but Ben wrote a really interesting blog post, which we're going to get into in a minute, and I'm going to link to, based on some new information that he's been uh, finding out. And so I think you guys are really, really going to enjoy this. But first, maybe, Ben, can you walk us through, give us a refresher on who Sarah Ann Whitney was? Sure. Sarah Ann Whitney um, was born to Elizabeth Whitney and Newell K. Whitney. Um, Those names are probably familiar to a lot of your listeners. Newell K. Whitney was the second bishop of the church. He and his wife were living in Kirtland when Joseph Smith and Emma arrived in early 1831. And they were some of the earliest converts and provided, uh, given their background as upper middle class uh, tradesmen, they provided kind of a financial background and respectability for the church. Elizabeth Ann Whitney, or yeah, Elizabeth Ann Whitney was uh, well known within the the women's organizations in the church. Even before the Relief Society, she was known for uh, speaking in tongues or singing in tongues to be more accurate. Um, participating in the Kirtland Temple dedication. Uh, Newell K. Whitney received a lot of the uh, early uh, priesthood ordinances. And then once, by the time they made it to Nauvoo, um, Newell K. Whitney took on a number of ecclesiastical and civic offices. And uh, Elizabeth Ann Whitney was one of the founders of the Relief Society. And throughout all this, Sarah Ann Whitney, who uh, was 17 by 1842, which is the year we'll be talking about today. She was born just before the church was organized. And so she came of age as her parents had joined the church. And so she probably grew up knowing and uh, and revering Joseph Smith as a prophet and experiencing the, the tragedies of being kicked out of Kirtland and Missouri and, and settling anew in, in Nauvoo. And she was 
one of, of you know, a, a growing number of teenage uh, Mormons in this bustling new town in Nauvoo who are trying to uh, make their way as most teenagers do in the, in the world of their parents. So just for listeners, uh, I looked it up. It's episode 16. Again, after 140, whatever, you forget how many episodes you've even done. So you, you need to you need to slow down, Lindsay. You are, you are doing far too much. Too many stories on polygamy. They just keep coming. There's so many interesting things to talk about. And even oh. when you think that you cover something like this story, you find out that there's more information. So why don't you... Well, let's talk about this. Sarah Ann Whitney is known and sometimes used by critics of Joseph Smith or critics of the church to sort of beat up Joseph Smith. She, of course, is a teenage bride. And she's sort of gifted to Joseph Smith, if you will, as a plural wife. And we're going to talk about that. But Ben, why don't you talk about your blog post? Tell us what prompts this blog post. Sure. Um, well, what prompted this blog post is the Joseph Smith Papers Project, who are d- doing extraordinary work. I mean, such great historians, uh, 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 well-respected both within the church and, and with outside in academia. Um Part of their project is even though their document series haven't reached uh, the Nauvoo years yet, or at least the meat of the Nauvoo years yet, they've been uploading a lot of these documents online, jillsmithpapers.org. You go there, you go into documents, and I think they're all the way through like fall of 1843. So they're they're moving along at a good pace. And one of their earlier cache of, of uploads earlier this year included a lot of documents from late winter, early spring of 1843. And this included a blessing from Sarah, uh, for Sarah and Whitney written in Joseph Smith's own hand and dated March 23 of 1843. And as we'll discuss, there's a lot of significance for this. And this document, a transcript had uh, made it around back in the 1970s. Uh, A few historians have mentioned it, but the document itself had been sequestered, uh, uh, whether in the first forensic vault or in some other uh, form of restriction, I, I'm not really sure. But it was unavailable to researchers until it just out of nowhere plopped down on the Joseph Papers website uh, earlier this year. And I, I, and I was alerted to it. And I was really excited. And in fact, one of my friends t- took a picture the moment I saw the document. And you, you, if those of you who are Facebook friends with me saw that um, I have my hands up on my head gasping as well. Just, it's just such a fascinating document and, and fills a big hole in, in what I think is a crucial story in Nauvoo polygamy. Yeah. And that's exactly my reaction. As someone who studies and follows this, I had no idea that this had dropped several months ago on Joseph Smith Papers Project. Didn't pay attention to it. It was seeing the picture in my Facebook feed of Ben about to have a heart attack. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe I should make that the cover for this, this podcast. It's great. Um, <laughs> you were shocked. And I'm like, wow, if Ben is shocked, I need to know what this is about. And of course, you had written this blog post, which everyone needs to read. So Sarah Ann Whitney is controversial for a few reasons. And so I want to get the critiques out of the way or maybe the criticisms thrown at this story, because another big controversial thing is the fact that she marries uh, Joseph Kingsbury. Yep. Now, one of the leading theories on this with is Brian Hales, and he argues, and you can see this on Fair Mormon, that 
Joseph basically seals her to another man as a ploy, but she never consummates the marriage. And I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself, but I just want to name the criticisms first so we can make sure that we get to all of that. The fact that she's underage and the fact that she's given to him as property. Is there any other critiques that you've heard? Um, well, um, she's she's also famous in certain circles for being the plural wife that Joseph Smith writes to while he's in hiding in 1842. And uh, in fact, why she's so crucial to the Nauvoo polygamy story is the only, the, the most important documents from Joseph Smith on polygamy concern Sarah and Whitney besides GNC 132, because we'll talk about, we have the, the document that actually uh, records the ritual that seals Joseph and uh, Sarah Ann together, as well as we have a letter written in Joseph Smith's own hand, written to Sarah's parents asking, asking for Newell and Elizabeth and Sarah to come visit him in hiding, but don't come if, if Emma's here because uh, that'll just cause problems. And so that, that's, that's obviously juicy material. Yeah. Okay. So when I first found this out, the, the this was several years ago, probably a decade ago when I had read about this letter and it makes it into Sunday school manuals and they only take out certain, they only use certain quotations for the Sunday school manual. So you never really get the full picture. So you know about this letter. Well, because- are you talking about the happiness? Yes. You're yes. thinking about the, um, about the Rigdon letter. Oh, I'm getting it mixed up already. That's fine. There's there's so few documents that it's easy to uh, to merge them together. Okay, so that's a perfect segue into what I want to talk about, which is, so we're going to talk about why the Whitney's, obviously the Whitney family is very important to the early Mormon story. But I want to talk about why this this document that you find is really important to the history of Joseph Smith actually being a polygamist because there's a debate right now that is gaining some traction again. It was really popular in um, the 70s or 80s uh, with the RLDS who denied that Joseph Smith was a polygamist and now it's getting some traction again with uh, the remnant movement who believe that Joseph Smith didn't practice plural marriage. And so one of their arguments is that we don't have anything firsthand from Joseph Smith. There's nothing in his hand to suggest to suggest it. So I am conflating the Rigdon letter with this, but in my mind, I have heard um, people take this letter and justify it. So can you tell justify it to argue that Joseph didn't practice plural marriage? So can you give us the traditional argument with this letter? Um, tell us what we knew this letter said and what... Joseph Smith polygamy deniers would have interpreted interpreted that as. Yeah. So the documents. So the, if it's okay, I'm going to talk about two main documents that come from the summer of 1842 because both of them come one directly from Joseph Smith and one indirectly from Joseph Smith. And I would say they're they're two of the most important documents for proving how polygamy existed. Um, the first one comes from July of 1842. And that's, uh, it's in Newell K. Whitney's, oh, I'm sorry. It's not in Newell K. Whitney's hands. It's a later typescript. We don't have the original document. We, we have the the words of Joseph Smith dictating a revelation, uh, telling Newell K. Whitney what to do when he's sealing his daughter, Sarah Ann Whitney, to Joseph Smith. Um, he uses a lot of the same 
theological justification that we also find in DNC 132 that families are going to be bound for eternity, that the lineage of the priesthood is going to unite these families for all of time. Um, but that's that's one document. And, and some people might say, well, that's not contemporaneous because we don't have the original copy. The other document that we have is crucial comes a, a few weeks later when Joseph Smith is hiding from extradition. If you remember, the state of Missouri sends out an order to return Joseph Smith to Missouri to be tried for crimes that took place in the Mormon Missouri War. Joseph Smith goes into hiding. Now, most Mormons are familiar with other letters that Joseph Smith writes during this time, letters that uh, eventually get canonized uh, in uh, the Doctrine and Covenants about baptisms for the dead. But during that same time, while Joseph Smith is hiding in a home outside of Nauvoo, he writes in his own hand a letter to Newell Kay and Elizabeth Whitney, asking for them and for Sarah to come visit him at their home. He, he promises them that there are more uh, ordinances that they need to be uh, 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 introduced into. Um, but it's very clear that he recognized the controversy and that the whole um, underlying message is that he wants to see not, not just his family that he's sealed to, but also his wife that he's now sealed to, Sarah. So he tells them, quote, the only thing to be careful of is to find out when Emma comes, because it cannot be safe if Emma were present. He also knows that the very fact that this document exists is, could get him into trouble because he specifically uh, tells them to, quote, burn this letter as soon as you read it, which of course, gives you a sense of why we don't have a lot of documents from this period re related to polygamy. So Joe Smith recognizes the, how this looks um, and goes through pains. And, and so in, in a way, this kind of gives an answer on why there's a scarcity of documents relating to polygamy, because they know that they're being watched. They know the combustible nature. And so um, and, and so we can only assume that this is not the only thing that Joseph Smith writes and then commands to be burned later. So this document we've known about for a while. Why mm. was it such a shock for you to see it? Well, this wasn't the document that the Joseph Smith papers released earlier this year. This this is a document that's been around for a while. The Both the letter and the revelation, those have been uh, posted for a while. What I saw that I was excited about is a blessing that comes about six months later. Okay, and that's an important distinction because yeah. it's actually an additional document to the documents that Ben Park um, just mentioned. And of course, I was conflating. For some reason, I thought that this was the letter that they were quoting in the Sunday School Manuals, but it's been a few years since I've looked at the Sunday School Manuals. Um, just because I mixed it up, will you tell us about the Rigdon document that I So was the, the about? Rigdon document, the letter that has a passage that's famous known as happiness is the object and design of our existence and will be the end thereof if we follow the path of righteousness, right? I forget how exactly it's where at the end. That's a letter that Joseph Smith um, arguably wrote to Sidney Rigdon's daughter um, in, when trying to court her for marriage. The issue is, and the Joseph Smith papers have actually raised this problem, the earliest provenance we have of that letter is being published by John C. Bennett the next year. And John C. Bennett is not always publishing the most uh, accurate uh, stuff. So that's 
possibly a letter of Joseph Smith uh, written as a defense of polygamy. It's also possibly a later fabrication. We are not sure. I mean, I, I, I think we have enough material to kind of show that the ideas in that do- in that letter probably work but yeah that's a separate letter that if it's real would have been written at about the same time uh for uh to sydney Rigdon's daughter who eventually rejects joseph smith's proposal for marriage and leaves the church okay so thank you and i'm sorry that i got that mess mixed up okay so back to the the letter the whitney letter that you're talking about not the document we're going to talk about in a yeah. minute this letter tells us that Joseph Smith has a connection to her and all of these things, but it's not enough for people to th- believe or to prove that Joseph Smith was practicing plural marriage. But it does tell us what? That they are asking to burn documents. They're asking to burn documents. That Joseph is very interested in seeing not just his good friends, Newell Kay and Elizabeth Ann Whitney, but also their 17-year-old daughter, Sarah Ann Whitney, and that there's something about secret ordinances that are binding the families together. Okay, so that's a good segue into your blog post. So walk us through the story again. You, give us, you gave us a brief overview, but let's talk about this actual time period, what's happening 1842 is a very important year in Nauvoo, although I say that and there really isn't a non-important year in Nauvoo. So 1842 is a very crucial year uh, in Nauvoo. Granted, there aren't very many non-crucial years in Nauvoo, but this 1842 is especially crucial for polygamy. Uh, It's during that year that Joseph Smith really sets out to uh, reform how society operates. Earlier that year, that's when the Book of Abraham is, is published. That's when uh, the in- first endowments are given. That's when the Relief Society is organized. That's when masonry is initiated in Nauvoo. So you have lots of new uh, uh, families being bound together. During around the same time, you have uh, other uh elite families in Nauvoo who are desiring to be connected to Joseph Smith, like Heber Sey and, and Valet Kimball, who um, proposed to Joseph Smith for him to be sealed to their daughter, Helen Marr Kimball. That, that's another uh, story that I'm sure you've covered on, on other podcasts. And then it's also during the summer that Joseph Smith approaches two of his longest serving friends, uh, Newell Kay and Elizabeth Ann Whitney, and says that there's a way for their families to be bound together through a polygamous union. Elizabeth later talks about how, how it was such a harrowing experience for them, but eventually uh, they claim they, have, uh, they received a revelation confirming that it's what they're supposed to do. And so in July, they... Uh, Joseph and Sarah Ann Whitney are sealed together through an ordinance that, like I mentioned, is actually recorded um, and is maintained in the Whitney family uh, for a long time. Copies eventually make it over to the church uh, history archives. A few weeks later, they, Joseph invites them to visit him while he's in hiding to show how close he feels in their association. Um, but you can imagine that this was a very trying time for not just uh, uh, Newell Kay and Elizabeth Whitney, but especially for Sarah. I mean, how are you going to provide for a secret plural wife, especially as she's entering adulthood and becoming a an adult woman? How is she going to be able to take care of herself? So that's you, you eventually see just a, a few weeks after their secret rendezvous, um, Smith signs over a, a substantial parcel, parcel of land 
to Sarah just up the road from her. Um, some might see this as compensation for her entering the union. This could also be seen as a, a proto attempt to provide financial support for plural wives, something that won't be formalized until uh, Utah. But still, you can imagine that um, that things are really tough. I mean, you don't have to imagine that hard to to think how how difficult this would be for a 17, soon to be turned 18-year-old woman whose entire life is now changed as a result of these decisions that are made by her parents and her prophet. Um, yeah, and, and so, as you point out in the blog post, she's known, Sarah's grown up knowing and revering him since she was a child. And there are a few dynamics that would make this particularly hard. First, the fact that it we don't necessarily know if Sarah wanted this, you know, um, we know that it was hard for her mother and for her, which suggests that this was a challenge for them. I'm sure it was uh, really off-putting to revere someone and then find out you're going to be his wife without, first of all, without even knowing that this was a thing. I mean, if when you hear about young girls in other polygamous groups now who are sealed to older men, most of them know it's coming. But in right. Sarah's case, they don't know it's coming. She can't talk about it with her friends. She can't yeah. even acknowledge it in public. Right. Imagine, I, I just can't fathom how difficult this would be to be suffering this in, in secret. I mean, this is this is where Todd Compton's title of his book is so brilliant, right? In Sacred Loneliness. Be, because you, you really, uh, uh, it's, it's, it, it, w- it would be difficult. And, and you'd have to wonder how much choice would she have when both her parents, who are her legal guardians and under the, the laws back then, have uh, full custody over her and her body, and her prophet, who has, in a sense, full priesthood power over the church and their, and their family unions. And so even with the financial stability that might have come with signing over a piece of land, and I love this, this uh, land deed that, that Joseph has signs over to Sarah Ann Whitney. And, and mind you, not me- very many 17-year-old girls in Nauvoo are receiving a parcel of land. <laughs> That's just not very common. And you can tell that this was a, a land deed that where they're not too concerned or they're not too uh, happy about having many people know because the only uh, signatures you'll find on it are Joseph Smith, who brokers a deal, and Newell K. Whitney, who signs it as the justice of the peace in the city. And so it's definitely a small circle who's going to know about this tra- land transaction. And we know that but, they even asked... Joseph even asked them to keep it from their son, Horace, because he was worried that Horace would cause trouble. Right, exactly. Later on, they they, specific, they, they remember that Joseph specifically told them not to tell uh, their, brother, uh, their son, Horace, Sarah, Sarah's brother, Horace, because he would cause, quote, serious trouble. And so you get to March of 1843, a few months later, and something crucial happens in March on March 22nd, and that's Sarah turns the age of 18. That's the entrance into womanhood. That would be the time when she would be expecting to get married, especially on the frontier like this. So it's uh, you. It's easy to imagine that there are probably suitors reaching out to her, and and given that she uh, is a eligible uh, female of a noble family that there might start to be questions if she's not dating men or, or looking to marry men and that's, and that's going to cause problems. And so something had to be done to make sure that uh, uh, 
not too many questions are raised or, or just to take her off the market. So what happened in the meantime between her sealing to Joseph and her turning 18 is her brother-in-law, uh, Joseph Kingsbury, who had been married to Sarah's sister, Carolyn, um, becomes a widower. Widower Carolyn dies while giving birth in October, leaving uh, leaving Joseph uh, with a a small uh, son who is a few years old by that point. Their their child dies in, in birth as well, and so Joseph Smith seems to uh, strike a solution. Or whether it's Joseph or the um, the Kim or the Whitney parents together, somehow. Uh, they make a decision that there should be a civil union between Joseph Kingsbury and and Sarah Ann Whitney. And Joseph Kingsbury later on specifically says that uh, this is a sham wedding. I mean, he he uh, he knows that this is something that is done for the public. Um, that's not going to really mean much. It's it's just basically to take Sarah Ann off the market. Let's talk about the complexity, though, in these relationships. So now in this, just in this one marriage, and Joseph Smith had many, he has to get many people on board. Um, He's making big sacrifices for the principle, if you will. So a, a lot of people that still believe in this idea would say, look at how important it was to him for all the ways that he had to go. And critics will say, look at all the ways he had to cover up his lie. But I think what is difficult to say is that he wasn't doing it at all. And again, I get accused of this bias that uh, not looking at the evidence that Joseph Smith didn't practice plural marriage. But to me, there are so many circumstantial things happening at the time. It would be absurd to argue otherwise. And so this gets us into the document that you have, the blessing. Right. So... What I argued, so this is a blessing of Sarah Ann that's dated uh, March 23rd. That date is significant. One, because it's the day after Sarah Ann's 18th birthday. And two, it's, it's, received the, it's written the same day as Joseph Kingsbury records a blessing in his diary. Now, we've had that blessing for a while because the Joseph Kingsbury diary has, has been available to scholars. And, and in his journal entry for March 23rd, he records a blessing that he receives from Joseph Smith, which is one of the most important passages, uh, documents in, in Nauvoo, because it promises Kingsbury that thy companion, Carolyn, who is dead, thou shalt have in the first resurrection. And this is as far as I can find, and I, and I may be corrected, this is the earliest reference we have of a sealing to the deceased. We've had baptisms for the dead before this, but this is going to be the first uh, uh, eternal sealing between someone who's alive and someone who's dead. And this so it's also interesting is- because, I mean... It's a confirmation of polygamy. Right. So what you see here is it seems like at, at a meeting that takes place on March 23rd, there is a, an agreement that struck between Joseph Kingsbury and Sarah and Whitney and probably the entire Whitney family that Joseph in or Joseph Kingsbury in, re, in re, uh, return for doing this public marriage with Sarah and Whitney going along with this, with this ruse that, that she's going to be, uh, uh, married to him in public, he is now promised that he will be married to his deceased wife. 
in Sarah's turn, and this is where this new document comes in, she is promised that through her, uh, it doesn't specifically say plural marriage, because again, they are careful in not uh, making anything that can make them indicted or or uh, called out in public. Remember the whole burn this letter when you read it mentality. Uh, Sarah receives a blessing saying that because of the covenants she has made, read between the lines of plural marriage this last fall, her entire family will be saved in the kingdom of God. And I mean, it's, it's very uh, specific. All her father's house shall be saved. If any one of the family shall wander from the fold of the Lord, they shall not perish, but shall return. So due to Sarah's sealing to uh, Joseph Smith, that entire family receives uh, assured uh, salvation, no matter what happens. And this is a document that the Whitney's hold uh, uh, in perpetuity for, for a, a long time. And what's significant is this document is written in Joseph Smith's own hand. And we have so few documents from the period that are written in, in Joseph Smith's own hand. So, I mean... I, I guess someone can try to twist the story around and say that, well, it doesn't specifically say polygamy. Well, I don't know of any other 17-year-old woman in Nauvoo who's carrying around a handwritten blessing from Joseph Smith, promising that due to the covenants she has made, their entire family is saved. At the same time that she, on the same day that she has been married in a, in a mock ceremony to someone who later states that it was all a public sham to take Sarah Ann off the market. Could we say, could you argue that the, because there's no other covenants that she would be making other than this, but could the covenants he's referring to be the ones to Joseph Kingsbury? Um, I don't know why, if, if it were to Joseph Kingsbury, a, a monogamous marriage that would have been fully accepted in that culture, it would have mentioned that it was because of her sailing to Joseph Kingsbury. I mean, it's kind of odd because if you look at this document, and, I, and I'm sure you'll link to the Joseph Smith Papers uh, document on, on the blog, it's a, an ornate paper. Um, it's either... Uh, very carefully hand sketched, or it's a paper bought uh, as an or ornate with with these borders, and it's kind. Of, it kind of looks like a Valentine, in a sense. Um, it would be odd to get something in honor of your new marriage and to not mention your civil husband. The only way it would be talking about a marriage covenant would be is if your husband is somehow secret, which is what polygamy demanded. And now I want to talk about the theology of it for just a minute, because this idea of getting sealed in plural marriage and saving your whole family is consistent with the Nauvoo period, but not necessarily consistent after that. So, I mean, it does tie in. There's some implications with the second anointing and things like that. But really, we don't know of anyone who is saving their whole family by being married into plural marriage at all. Um, however, Joseph Smith does say things to other this is consistent backs up other narratives where people and their family members are promised salvation which i think argues your point um it's it, this is not i would say i don't really know of any groups that see a young woman entering into plural marriage and saving her entire family um right. her previous family but maybe her future posterity right so let me talk to this about 
Yeah, let me talk about the historical legacy for a minute, and then we'll talk about two different uh, interpretations. So the Whitney family keep this document in their possession, and it's Orson F. Whitney, who is Sarah Ann's nephew, who later becomes a a prominent church uh, leader and writer, who later, um, you could tell because he's familiar with this document, starts teaching this document or starts teaching this doctrine. And I'm sure many listeners are familiar with this, this common saying of his that when a ceiling is placed on a family, uh, no member of that, that family can be lost. Let's see. I have the the quote here. The prophet Joseph declared, and he's never taught a more comforting doctrine that the eternal ceilings of faithful parents and the divine promises made to them for their valiant service in the cause of truth would not only save themselves, but likewise their posterity. Though some of the sheep may wander, the eye of the shepherd is upon them, and sooner or later they will fill the tentacles of divine providence, reaching out after them and drawing them back to the fold. Either in this life or in the life to come, they will return. And that quote kind of passed around in, in, in church lore for a long time. It's been frequently quoted by different uh, church leaders from general conference but as you but it doesn't really fit our theology in some ways because we believe people have agency and that agency is going to lead to specific uh, return so in a way this this doctrine would take away the agency of, of those who rebel and in fact um, this this contrast came out fully just a few years ago when uh, David A. Bidenard of the Quorum of the Twelve devoted a general conference talk to trying to debunk that very doctrine, saying it has no historical accuracy. In fact, Joseph's statements from Nauvoo uh, preach the opposite. Um, and so the, the release of this document um, kind of undercuts that Bednar argument um, because we have something in Joseph Smith's own hand uh, speaking what uh, Orson F. Whitney has been saying all along, again, because Orson F. Whitney had access to this document that has not been accessible to the rest of us. So the interpretations of this, let me start with with the cynical view. Someone could look at this document and say, well, this is Joseph Smith just making Sarah Ann feel that her sacrifice is worth it, trying to make it so she's willing to enter into polygamy. And I mean, people can make that. I can see how that's very viable. And I'm, and I'm sure that, I mean, things are so tense. Joseph Smith is coming out of a year in 1842 where he lost one of his closest advisors, John C. Bennett, uh, spilling lots of in, uh, secrets, secrets that he knows and secrets that he's uh, exaggerating to the public. And so he's really wanting people to hold this uh, uh, secret in. And so um, letting a 17 and now 18 year old in on this secret is a, is a big risk. And so there has to be rewards. But I think you could also see how this statement fit into Joseph Smith's broader theology to where salvation was a familial pursuit. You weren't saved so much through your own actions, by through your connections to other families, through this lineage of the priesthood, to use the language from the revelation that previous summer, that the Whitney's and the Smiths are saved in only in as much as they fit within this patriarchal order together. And if they were separate, then there was no salvation. So I can see how that doctrine actually fit within this whole societal reform vision that Joseph Smith is trying to implement in Nauvoo. Excellent. That's so great. Okay. Does the document tell us anything else? 
Well, I think it shows um, the fact that it stays in the Whitney family, I, th- I think, shows how much it meant to Sarah and Whitney. And if not Sarah and Whitney, then at least her parents. But I'm, 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 I'd like to think that it's Sarah and Whitney who maintains it, because I mean, I can't imagine that how difficult this must have been for someone like her and how she'd be anxious to reach out for some form of assurance and being able to carry around this small uh, ornate document in the prophet's own hands would have provided her some sense of formality, some sense of, of tangible assurance that, that uh, of the sacrifice she has made. So I think there, there's a material history uh, with this document that really adds a lot into how someone who is might otherwise have felt tossed by the whirlwinds of the Nauvoo's events, having some form of a textual anchor. One thing that you point out in your blog post that I that I don't know that I've really talked about here at all was the idea of, and you covered this just a little bit, but I want you to cover it a little bit more here, which is this idea of things being written down had a real significance to early saints. And so, again, we can't underscore or overstate this enough. The fact that this is in Joseph Smith's handwriting is a big deal. This is a big deal. But why would Sarah Ann have wanted this document written down? This, we, we talk about the, the scriptural sayings was written on earth shall be written in heaven. Early saints took that literally. They believe that there is a literal book of the, the, the life where if your name is recorded in that, that, that can assure you salvation. And you even see the, the textual evidence in this in Nauvoo with the book that they call the book of the law of the Lord which is where they not only wrote uh, sacred things like, like some revelations, but they would write, record down people who donated to the temple, people who donated to the Nauvoo house, people who sacrificed uh, uh, things for the institution, their names and their goods would be written in this, in this book. And they literally believed that that was like writing their name upon a heavenly record that would assure them rewards. And so there is a spiritual power they would have believed in this type of document that if a prophet taking his quill to this paper and penning out the blessings that um, that were promised or orally the previous summer in in the ritual but now written down on a physical document that's a ticket that's that's a very tangible ticket that us in, in a very secular society today probably don't really grasp but it would have been exceptionally powerful to them in the 1840s Thank you for for bringing that up because I think that that that's important to understand the significance of this document and the other documents that we talked about, and so those are just so this is a big deal because this confirms um, that there was a covenant that was made, and it like you said it's very very unique. Is there any other way that you want to talk about the document before I talk about a few other things? No, I I think we covered just about everything. Okay, so. Other things that happen in Sarah Ann's life as she gets older, she ends up, you know, being sealed to Heber C. Kimball, and that's another story. But um, in 1880, Kingsbury actually submits a bill to the church for financial support of Sarah Ann. And the bill reads, quote, November 23rd, 1880, Joseph C. Kingsbury asked John Taylor that an $8,000 debt to the church be remitted in consideration of services he had rendered in Nauvoo, and after leaving there to the Prophet Joseph Smith and keeping one of his wives, Sarah Whitney, a daughter of Bishop Newell K. Whitney. 
end quote. So this is another another piece of information to back up this story, which is that she was seen as a plural wife of Joseph Smith, um, not just like years later, but so much so that that he keeps a bill <laughs> and charges the church. And we don't know if that was ever paid, right? Yeah, um, I I don't know. For me, history ends in 1846, but I have to dip in a little bit to look for later validation of this Nauvoo story. I have not seen any evidence that that he was paid, but the fact that he is requesting that shows that, I mean, he's still holding these ideas in in his mind long afterwards. So you can see the long legacies of these events that kind of be that are made in earnest um, in 1842 and 1843, having very long repercussions. Well, and we have, you know, even Helen Mark Kimball mentioned Sarah and Whitney by name, saying that Joseph Smith had reached out to her as well. And so, I mean, again, this is just one more, I would say, big piece in the puzzle because it, you know, proving that Joseph Smith was a polygamist, but also the implications, like you said, into theology and helping us understand that. And yeah, the absolutely. way the ceilings to the to a dead person, that's a big deal. Yeah, we, we make a big deal because later that summer... Um, when Hiram Smith is finally introduced into polygamy, um, he, he said, Brigham Young later says that Hiram Smith converts because he has promised that he can be sealed to his deceased wife. Well, that doctrine had not been around for more than just a few months. And in fact, as I said, the, the first time we have a contemporary document talking about uh, posthumous sealings was with Joseph Kingsbury. So you can see the the implications that come out of this bargain that struck in March of 1843, um, whether you want to take a, a, a critical view that says that Joe Smith is making this up all along, or you can take a very uh, evolutionary, uh, uh, progressive view of how religion uh, and revelation operates, that it's kind of born out of specific moments, it's born out of situations and circumstances, and that the line upon line process is, is probably a bit more uh, a sticky, uh, and in some cases icky, than, than, we, uh, than we'd like to think. But, but I think, yeah, this, this document really adds a, a, a crucial key into the story of not just the unraveling of polygamy, but the unraveling of marriage doctrine and the theology of ceilings in, in Nauvoo at the very moment that it's expanding. So I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but, you know, Sarah is married to Heber C. Kimball in March, March 17th, 1845. So within three, three years, almost exactly to when she gets sealed to Kingsbury. Uh, what's interesting, this is yet another example or evidence that she was a plural wife of Joseph Smith, because most of the women that sealed to Heber were also sealed to Joseph, and um, she ends up having seven kids with him. But do you know uh, what happens to Kingsbury? Obviously, he shows up in 1880 with a bill to the church, but does he ever get remarried? Even though he's- he does, he does, and I'm pretty sure he marries polygamously and has an, a number of kids with with at least two wives. But then I, I I could be corrected on this, but that's my memory. Okay, yeah, I didn't look it up for this particular episode, but something that I think we can find out. Yeah, I, I just think, I think that the ceiling in and of itself to a dead woman is yeah. evidence enough of, of polygamy for me in Nauvoo. I mean, what that is saying is I'm going to marry you to your sister and we're going to seal you to another and woman. That, 
And that becomes the preeminent defense of, of polygamy for the rest of 1843 and, and to the point to where you have several people, some of the earliest documents uh, uh, of people discussing polygamy of outside the elite circle anyway, frame it as a way of this is a way for me or so-and-so to be sealed to their deceased spouse while also sealed to their current spouse. Fantastic. Well, I'm so excited about this and I'm so glad that you came on to tell us about it. And you on your blog, which I'll link to, you have this beautiful photo of, it is a beautiful revelation on this sort of scalloped paper and it's pretty great. Yeah. And uh, readers, make sure to go click on to the Joseph Papers website where you can see a high resolution image. You can zoom in, you can zoom out. Um, it's, it's a fabulous service that the JSP did and it it really helps us put together this Nauvoo story. Yeah. And I, I think that again, the Joseph Smith papers project doesn't get nearly enough uh, credit for the work that they are doing in this, in this internet age where everyone is worried about getting the right information. I mean, you can go see original documents online or, you know, some of them you can even request to see in person, but it's it's a phenomenal thing that they are doing over there absolutely okay well thank you ben i really appreciate it is there anything else you want to share nope just always a pleasure to be on Lindsay. yep you're the best to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.